If you have your Bible, open it with me to the book of 1 Timothy. We're going to pause this morning from our series through the Gospel of John. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. I heard about a man who was on his deathbed, and his strength was fading, but he mustered up what strength he had to speak to his wife. And he said to her, you know, honey, when I lost my job, you were there. And when I started a business and it failed, you were there. When I got news that our home burned down and we lost all of our worldly possessions, you were there. When I got my diagnosis, you were there. And now I am dying. And here you are. He said, you know what? And she said, what, honey? As she was wiping a tear from her eye, he said, I'm starting to think that you're bad luck. Well, here was a man who should have been grateful to have a wife who was with him through all of those things, but somehow he found a way to complain. Now, does that sound familiar? Does that sound like anyone you have seen, perhaps even in the mirror? We all know with our minds that 1 Thessalonians 5 tells us to give thanks in everything, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. We know intellectually that we should count our blessings, and yet it's just so easy to focus on the negative, and we count our problems instead. This morning, we're going to read a passage of Scripture which reminds us that for the Christian, every single day is to be a day of thanksgiving. It's not hard to know the point of this passage because Paul tells us explicitly. Now, you're going to notice at the beginning of this text in verse 12, Paul says, I thank Christ Jesus. And then just a few words later, he says, because. I thank Christ Jesus because. That is the point of this passage, and everything else in this passage flows from that one statement. This is Paul's answer to the question, for what are you thankful? Now, every one of us can answer that question, and we might would all answer that question in a different way, but it is a question that all of us should ask. For what are we thankful? Someone once said, if you woke up tomorrow and the only things you had were the things you gave thanks for today, what would you have? Would you have anything at all? Well, Paul answers this question for himself. What is he thankful for? And he answers it in such a way that we see five clear, distinct answers. Now, Paul mentions five things that he was thankful for, but we also see that these are things for which every born-again child of God should be thankful for as well. And first of all, I can give thanks for the way God sustains me. I can give thanks for the way God sustains me. Look at verse 12. And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me because he counted me faithful putting me into the ministry. Now, notice those words. Who has enabled 
me. That word enabled can be translated to strengthen or to sustain. Who is it who has sustained Paul? He says, Christ Jesus, our Lord. And for that, Paul gives thanks. Now, when Paul gives thanks to God for sustaining him, we should pause and remember exactly what God had to sustain him through. He has been beaten, and he has been scourged, and he has been stoned, he's been shipwrecked, he's been falsely accused, he's been abandoned, he has had times where he lacked basic needs like food or shelter, And in each of these cases, God did not remove the burden from him. God did not pull him out of that storm. In each of these cases, God gave him the strength to endure it. God sustained him. And Paul said, for that, I give thanks. God never puts us in a situation in which he does not give us the grace or the strength to be able to endure it. Paul said, Christ has enabled me Notice what comes next. Because he counted me faithful. One thing Paul could say about himself was, yes, he had been faithful. He had been faithful to God. He had been faithful to God's word. He had been faithful to preach the gospel. And yet, Paul is not saying that he deserves praise for him being faithful. He's saying that God deserves praise for him being faithful faithful. I think about that statement Paul made in 1 Corinthians 7 when he said, by the mercy of the Lord, I am trustworthy. Yes, he could say, I am trustworthy. But the only reason why I can say that is because of God's mercy on me. Paul knew that his faithfulness to Christ stemmed from his experience with Christ. One more example of this in verse 12 Paul adds, putting me into the ministry. That word can also be translated service. God put me in service. Everyone, it seems, wants someone to serve them. How few there are who are willing to serve others. But Paul said, yes, God enabled me. And part of that enablement was the ability that he gave me and the privilege that he gave me to serve. It is a privilege to be able to serve God. And Paul said, I thank God for it. There's an ancient tale about a Spartan who participated in the Olympic Games. And someone tried to bribe him, offering him a lot of money if he would withdraw from a certain competition. Well, even though it was a lot of money, he turned it down He wrestled anyway, and he won the competition. Afterwards, someone came up to him and said, Spartan, what did you get out of this victory that you've won? And he replied, I won the privilege of standing before the king. To stand before our king and to serve the king of kings, yes, it is a privilege To serve God is not something that we do to pay God back for grace. No, it is grace itself that we can serve him. And the more we serve him, the more indebted to his grace we become. 
Paul said, I give thanks to God because he enabled me. Because of him, I've been faithful. And because of him, I've been able to serve. And so I can give thanks for the way God sustains me, but also I can give thanks for the mercy God shows me. I can give thanks for the mercy God shows me. Look at verse 19, or verse 13. Paul, speaking of himself, and he says, although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man. Let me pause there. Paul uses three words to describe himself. He says, I used to be a blasphemer, a persecutor, and insolent. I was a blasphemer. Understand what that means. Paul was not just indifferent to Jesus before he met him on the Damascus Road. Paul was not uninterested in spiritual things before he was saved. No, he was a blasphemer. That means he actively worked to persuade others that Jesus was not the Messiah. And not only that, but he was a persecutor. That means his opposition to Jesus was not just verbal. It was not just philosophical. His opposition to Jesus was actually violent. Blood was shed. People lost their lives. He was also insolent. He despised Jesus. He despised Christians. He hated them. Paul was all of these things, and yet notice what comes next in verse 13. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. Now, Paul is not diminishing his guilt. He is saying that there was a seed of ignorance in his guilt. He was not like the Pharisees who had seen Jesus up close and personal, who had seen the truth and knew the truth, but then they rejected it anyway. No, Paul genuinely did not know who Jesus was. He thought he did, but he did not. And yet Paul said he received mercy. Skip down to verse 16. However, for this reason, I obtained mercy that in me first Jesus Christ might show all long-suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Paul says, even though I was all of these things, I obtained mercy. Now, I want you to notice those words, obtained mercy, because in the original language, it's just so much more powerful. It's so much more forceful. In the Greek, it literally says, I was mercied. Because I don't know if you know this or not, but in the Bible and in the original language in which the New Testament was written, mercy is not just a noun. Mercy is a verb. Paul says, God mercied me. Well, well, what's the difference? The difference is this is active. This is not passive. To mercy someone means to intentionally act towards them in such a way that you do not hold their sin against them. Paul's saying, I deserve judgment and hell, but God was merciful, therefore he withheld that from me in Christ. And so Paul remembers who he used to be and the mercy that he's received, and that spurs him to give thanks. 
I'm going to say something that maybe some of you will not like, but I think it needs to be said. Just because God forgets your sin doesn't mean you should. Just because God forbid, forgets, that doesn't mean you should. And someone will say, oh, but pastor, uh, we should not live in the past. Well, there's a difference between living in the past and remembering your past. Paul remembered his past. He remembered who he used to be, and he would not allow himself to forget. And I'm not saying that you should dwell on it and spend all your time on it. I'm not saying you should boast in some of the wicked things that maybe you used to do. But listen, the memory of who you were will keep the fires of gratitude burning in your life. The memory of what you have been forgiven will help keep your love for Jesus strong and growing. Many of you are familiar with that great story of John Newton, the preacher, the hymn writer, the author of Amazing Grace, the most famous hymn uh, probably that was ever written. Well, John Newton never forgot who he used to be. He used to be a slave trader. This was a man who had the blood of many slaves on his hands before he came to know the Lord. But before he died, John Newton left instructions for what he wanted to be written on his tombstone. And here were his instructions. John Newton, crook, once an infidel and a libertine, a servant, which in this case means a seller of slaves in Africa, was by the mercy of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he long labored to destroy. John Newton never forgot who he used to be. Paul also remembered who he used to be, and it was because he remembered who he used to be, that he could say this at the beginning, at the ending of verse 16, that in me first Jesus Christ might show all long suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Now, why did God save Paul? Not because God needed Paul. God does not need any of us. No, God saved Paul, he said, to show all long-suffering. In other words, to demonstrate his extraordinary patience to the world. God saved Paul in order to put his own mercy on display so that when the world saw what God had done in Paul's life, the result would be that they would worship him. God saved Paul, so that the rest of us could say, well, if there's hope for Paul, I guess that means there is hope for me. And so I can give thanks for the way God sustains me, and I can give thanks for the mercy God shows me, and also I can give thanks for the grace God gives me. For the grace God gives me. He gives us another reason in verse 14. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Paul gave thanks for 
grace. Grace is the unmerited favor of God. And there have been many attempts over the years by some to define grace, and I would imagine that any definition is going to fall short, but I particularly like this definition of grace by John MacArthur. It's a little bit long, but it's worth it. Here's how he defines grace. Grace is God's loving forgiveness by which he grants exemption from judgment and the promise of temporal and eternal blessings to guilty and condemned sinners freely without any worthiness on their part and based on nothing they have done or failed to do. That's grace. Now, with that in mind, I love the way Paul said this in verse 14. This is awesome. He said, the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant. Exceedingly abundant. Now, those two words uh, in the English are rather interesting. It's kind of hard to translate from the original language. It's basically the word abundant. Paul takes that word and he slaps hyper onto the front of it. Hyper abundant. And we believe that Paul was actually inventing a word here. And by the way, that's okay. We do that all the time. If you're from the South, if you're, if you're Cuban, you guys, you, you, you create new words all the time, right? Well, Paul is basically inventing a word. You will never find this word that he's using here to describe grace anywhere else in the Bible. In fact, you will not find this word anywhere else in all of ancient literature, but Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, made up a word that did not exist because there was no other word available to him to describe just how amazing God's grace is. So he said it is hyperabundant grace. I like that. It's hyperabundant, exceedingly abundant. It just keeps on giving. It keeps on blessing. Now, that was true for Paul, and that's true for you and for me. I heard a excuse me, story about a little uh, boy who would come by a barber shop every now and then. And, and this barber, he was, he was kind of bad-mouthing that, that boy. He was talking to some of his clients as he was cutting hair. He said, you know, th- there's this kid that comes into my shop and He said, I think this is the dumbest kid I've ever seen in my life. He said, there's this kid who comes by here, and uh, he's so dumb. Every day he comes by, and I will say to that kid, hey, kid, come here. Which would you rather have? Would you rather have one dollar or two quarters? Whichever one you want, which one do you prefer? He said, you know what? That kid is so dumb every day. He, he grabs those two quarters because he thinks that two quarters are more than one dollar. A few minutes later, that kid shows up, sure enough, and that barber says, hey, kid, come here, come here. Which one would you rather have? Would you rather have one dollar or two quarters? And sure enough, that little boy grabbed those quarters, ran out the door, and everybody started laughing at him. Well, a little while later, somebody saw that kid and said, hey, hey, kid, don't you know what they're saying about you? They say that you're dumb. 
They say that you don't know that $1 is more than two quarters. And that kid said, mister, the day I take the dollar, the game is over. Well, the moral of the story is, in the game of grace, it's never over. God is not like that barber. He'll give you his best today and tomorrow and the day after that and the day after that. And tomorrow, you can come to him and you can experience grace and forgiveness and blessings. And tomorrow, it's all of the above all over again. That's why Paul calls it hyperabundant grace. And what comes with this grace? Look in verse 14. He says, with faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. Hyperabundant grace along with faith and love. You see, the faith that we have in God and the love that we have for God, these aren't things that we do to earn God's favor. You know what these things are? Grace. These are gifts. And and yes, you must choose to utilize those gifts. We are commanded to have faith. We are commanded to love God. And yet the ability that we would have to be able to have faith in him, the ability to love him, this is grace. This is a gift. Here's a prayer that perhaps you should pray. Dear God, thank you for faith. Not a bad prayer to pray. Thank you for faith. Or how about this? Dear God, thank you for my love for you. Not just thank you for loving me. Thank you for making it possible for me to love you back. Again, this is grace. And Paul says, no matter what I am going through, I can give thanks to God for that hyperabundant grace That brings faith and love into my life. Something else that Paul gave thanks for, and we can too. I can give thanks for the price God paid for me. Look at verse 15. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Now, I believe that when Paul calls himself the chief of sinners, he's referring to his old life, not his current one. But I want you to notice at the beginning of that verse, this statement, this is a faithful saying. This appears five times in Paul's writings. And did you know that every single time that appears, it is always immediately before a very important doctrine. It's always used right before a fundamental of the faith. And in this case, notice he says, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. It sounds like Paul is actually admitting that there are some things that not all will accept. We are not all going to agree on some things, and that's fine. But Paul says this is worthy of all acceptance. In other words, we can all agree on this. And he basically then proceeds to summarize the gospel. What you have here is a summary of the gospel. It is just 
eight words in the original language. It's just nine words in English. And here it is. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. There's the gospel in a nutshell. And let me break down that statement. Christ, that means Messiah, the one God promised to send into the world to save us. Who is he? Jesus. What does that name mean? God saves. God saves. The one who saves us is God, the one true God, Jesus, the Son of God. What did he do? He came into the world. He did not come into being. He did not come into existence. He came into the world. This points to his incarnation, to his virgin birth. It refers to the fact that he was fully God and yet fully man. He came into the world. That word world refers to the system of this world that is opposed to the things of God, a world that is actually hostile to God. Why would Jesus come to such a place? To save who? Sinners. Unworthy people who have broken God's law, rebelled against God's authority, and trampled upon God's grace. And since the wages of sin is death, for Christ to save sinners, that meant Jesus had to come and die in our place and defeat death by rising again. Because Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, that means that no matter who you are, that means that no matter what you've done, you can be saved if you are willing to repent, if you will place your faith in Christ as Lord. Paul gave thanks for the price God paid. And by the way, one of the reasons why we observe the Lord's Supper, which we will do in just a few moments, is to remember the price Jesus paid, the body that was broken, the blood that was shed, so that we would always be thankful. One more thing that we see in this passage for which Paul gave thanks, and we also can give thanks. I can give thanks for God's greatness he revealed to me. Notice verse 17. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul begins by saying, I give thanks because. And then he ends this passage with a doxology. It's a song of praise based on God's nature and his attributes. It's as if Paul is saying, if none of these things in verses 12 through 16 ever happened, or if for some reason God decided that he were going to stop blessing me right now, he would still be worthy of praise, and it would still be appropriate for me to thank him based just on who God is. Now, who is he? Notice what Paul says. He is king. He rules. He reigns. All authority belongs to him. He is eternal. He is above time. He's the beginning and the end. He is immortal. That means he's invincible and indestructible. He's the source of all life. He is invisible. Why does God being invisible cause Paul to give thanks? 
because he is invisible and yet he still reveals himself to us in such a way that we can know him. He reveals himself through creation. He reveals himself through his word. He reveals himself through Christ. He reveals himself to us personally. And notice Paul said, he alone is wise. He is the source of all wisdom. Apart from him, there is no wisdom. The wisest of men are foolish compared to God's wisdom, and his wisdom never fails. You put it all together. Even if somehow we did not have, or somehow we did not know about God's sustaining power in verse 12, or God's mercy in verses 13 and 16. If we did not know about God's grace in verse 14 or his sacrifice in verse 15, if verse 17 were all that we had and all that we knew that God is king, eternal, immortal, invisible, and the only wise God, he said we should still give to him, notice the end of the verse, honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Because if that's all you've got when you get to the end of your rope, if that's all you've got when you touch the bottom of life, that by itself is going to be reason to praise Him and reason to give Him thanks. We've talked today about why we give thanks, and that is so important. But at the end of the day, we come face to face with another question, an even bigger question. And the question is not why we give thanks, but the question really is, will we give thanks? Heavenly Father, we thank you for these verses that we've read, so full of truth and meaning and doctrine, so applicable to our lives. And every time Paul said what he was thankful for, we see something for which we ought to be thankful for as well. And so help us, Father, to take all of this and to apply it to truly, truly be a thankful people. Father, you've given us this thing called the Lord's Supper so that we would remember the price that Jesus paid, how his body was broken for us, how his blood was shed for us so that we could be saved. I pray that for those who are here in this room this morning who, who know you personally, that you would speak and help us to examine ourselves as your word says that we should. And if there's any wicked way in us, if there's any area in which we just need to repent, any sin we need to confess, we ask you, Lord, to reveal that to us in these next few moments so that we would come and celebrate in a manner that is worthy. Lord, I pray if there are any here today who have not accepted this gift of grace that you are offering through Jesus Christ, this gift of eternal life. I pray that they would not wait another day, not another moment, but even now would call out to you, admitting that they're a sinner, confessing Christ as Savior and Lord of their lives. Speak to us and show us, Lord, what you'd have us to do. We'll give you the thanks and the praise. As we continue to pray with heads bowed and eyes closed, I'm going to give you a few moments to pray individually and take these moments and ask God if there's any sin that you simply need to confess. As he reveals it to you, you do just that. If there's an area of repentance that needs to take place or some area of your life that you need to surrender to him afresh and anew, 
take these next few moments and, and do that. But let me just speak to you here today. If you don't know for sure where you'd spend eternity, if you died right now, the good news is that can change. Jesus came from heaven to earth. He lived the life we should have lived, a sinless, perfect life, free of any rebellion against God. It's like he took the test in our place and passed it with flying colors, a perfect score. He then took that innocence and he exchanged it for our guilt. The Bible says, he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He took our sin. It's as if he became our sin, suffering upon himself all of the wrath of God and all of the punishment for all of the things that we deserved should have been our nails and our hands and our feet. That should have been a, the crown of thorns on our head. But he did all of that for us. The Bible calls that a gift. He died on the cross. He rose again on the third day. He's alive. He is Lord. And the Bible says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Maybe this morning you need to do that. You've, you've never taken that step of saying, I will follow Christ as Lord of my life. I'm going to stop following my own agenda, my own plans, my own sinful way of life. And as of this day, as of this moment, Jesus, I will follow you as Lord of my life. That's the most critical step you can take. It's bigger than any decision you will make in all of life. Maybe for some of you, that moment is right now. That moment when you should take that step. And so if that's you, just pray and say, Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I know I've blown it. I've done things I shouldn't do. But Jesus, I also believe you died for me. And I believe that you rose again. And so I'm going to follow you as Lord of my life, my master, my king. I will follow you. And you make that your prayer. If that's your prayer this morning, don't leave here today without telling me because we want to know so that we can help you to grow, so we can celebrate with you. The Bible says there is celebration in heaven when just one sinner repents. We're going to go out and have a banquet, have a celebration in a few moments. There's a bigger celebration that can take place in heaven this morning for that one man or woman or young person who gives their hearts and lives to Christ. So if that's you, you make sure you let us know.